Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pseudo Podcast. I am Ori, and I'm Nick. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. Now, the topic for today is gonna be serverless. Uh, this is a topic that we hear new things about every day. The term itself is confusing because there is a server that handles just that architecture, just not on our end. For this episode, the topics we are going to talk about are what the heck is serverless, a brief history of serverless, uh, the benefits and drawbacks of serverless, and different companies that offer serverless. We sure are, and there is a lot to cover here, so we're just going to jump right into it today, um, and I'm going to kick it off with what the heck is serverless architecture, aka the Sparknotes edition. So, according to Cloudflare, serverless computing is a method of providing back-end services on an as-used basis. It's essentially pay-as-you-go computing. Amazon Web Services explains that serverless, quote, eliminates infrastructure management tasks such as server or cluster provisioning, patching, operating system maintenance, and capacity provisioning. In plain English, serverless lets you use your computer resources for whatever task you need without worrying about where those resources are coming from. You don't pay for anything you don't use, and you don't pay for the overhead of maintaining infrastructure. That's all fine and dandy, but we know the code runs on servers. So, Ori... Where the heck are the servers? Yeah, you might have noticed above that none of those definitions say there are no servers, even though the name says, says serverless. You don't have to maintain the servers, and that is what they mean. That's the essence of serverless architecture. You're a consumer of a service. You are using infrastructure that someone else set up specifically for the purpose of providing that service rather than building your own infrastructure to create a custom version of that service for yourself. Understanding that concept is very important to understand the concept of serverless architecture overall. Rather than running an entire ecosystem of servers with unique purpose, purposes to power a complex application, you rely on an ecosystem of isolated services that address each of those unique needs of your application. There are many different parts to serverless architecture. There sure are. It's a lot more than functions as a service, which is primarily what I think of when I think about serverless architecture. For me, that's the clearest use case for serverless stuff that's easy to grok. However, these architectures are multi multifaceted and cover everything from compute resources, uh, which are functions as a service, to push notifications, which categorically we'll call messaging. And we'll talk a little bit about some of each of these core types of serverless services right now, and we'll get a look at how different companies offer those services later on. So right out of the gate, compute resources. Compute resources are that function as a service kind of idea. Maybe you need to process some user input and save it to your database. Maybe you need to generate a report when someone clicks a button. For those operations, you probably need some server time. In a traditional cloud infrastructure, you'd run a server so that you could have this compute power on hand when you need it, but you'd also be paying for it when you don't need it. Then the other category is storage. So many sites or applications need to save stuff. Think about uploading a profile picture to a social media platform, or saving custom recipes to your fitness tracking application. 
that information needs to persist somewhere so that we can access it, it later. Storage might be as simple as a static file server. You make a request to the server and you get a file back in response. This is a common solution for uploading documents like photos, music, and videos. As another example, static HTML websites often use a serverless solution like AWS Simple Static Storage S3 for hosting because each request only needs to return an HTML page for your browser to render. The storage can also be dynamic and data-oriented. Database work best here. NoSQL databases are very common parts of serverless. Imagine a fitness tracking application that takes in custom recipes from users and stores their nutrition information. Those recipes are then available to other users in the app. That information needs to be stored in a database so it can be retrieved later. Numerous vendors offer database solutions that don't require you to maintain your own database server. Next up is request interfaces. Uh, compute resources are like the muscles that connect and operate on the storage layer of a serverless application, but we still need a way for the interface layer, the visual part of an app, to interact with the backend. That's where request interfaces come in. The overwhelming majority of applications interact with their backends via good old hypertext transfer protocol, also known as HTTP. Um, many serverless providers offer tools for making requests to a web server they manage, which in turn activates compute resources or connects to a dynamic storage solution. These services can take many different forms, but the important thing is that they let an application talk to other parts of serverless infrastructure. That's really the takeaway for request interfaces. For sure. And like we talked before about messaging. So let's cover that, that topic. So that's a the last major type of serverless infrastructure we'll discuss here. So it's very common for applications to need a way to activate different services based on some event. Push notifications, email list descriptions, and data processing pipelines are all event-driven use cases that traditionally require, require some kind of messaging server. Push notifications and email lists often follow the pub, sub, publish, and subscribe pattern. They have a group of people subscribe to a topic. When a new event is published with that topic, everyone subscribed to the topic receives a notification. Kind of like those uh, email lists that you subscribe to that weekly they send you an email about um, a topic. Asynchronous data pipelines often operate on a queue pattern. Imagine uploading a data file to some website for processing. When that file is uploaded, it gets put into a queue. Once all of the other files ahead of yours in the queue finish, processing yours gets processed and the result gets stored. Again, traditionally, you have to run a queue server to manage all of those messages. Now, many companies offer dedicated queuing services so that you don't have to maintain the server yourself, but you can still get the benefits of queuing. Yeah, which is super useful, um, as we'll talk about in a bit here. 
Um, there are certainly other pieces of serverless architecture out there, but these are the main four areas that we'll keep in mind as we unpack serverless architecture in this episode. They're illustrative enough to help us understand what's going on without getting too deep into the technical weeds. Plus, they're the four that we're personally most familiar with, <laughs> so we can speak with more knowledge about them. Now that we've gotten an overview of what serverless architecture actually means, let's talk a bit about how serverless architecture became a thing in the first place with the history of serverless architecture. Though serverless architecture is kind of the new hotness right now, and frankly becoming the old hotness really, the concept has actually been around for a very long time in tech years. Um, however, it's only grown into its own as a fully viable choice for complex applications in the last five years or so. But when did what we think of as serverless architecture really come onto the scene, Ori? The first commercial product that offered serverless compute resources was called SimKey and was launched in 2006 by the UK-based company Fotango, owned by Canon, the camera company. It created a grid of SimKey servers that developers can use to execute arbitrary JS code. It used a shared capacity billing model. How it worked was that developers had the ability to host and create a network with other developers of SimKey servers, increasing the capacity of the grid. They will then figure out the billing based on the network capacity. This, this honestly makes me think of the video game uh, Dead Stranding, where every person you bring into the Karelium network increases the network capacity, allowing the player to build more stuff like bridges, uh, facilities, you name it. So now going back to uh, SimKey, they also wanted the project to be open source with the promise of giving back to the community. Unfortunately, the platform did not last long. There were many issues on the corporate level by making the platform open source. The COO, Simon Wardley, quit due to that at a keynote speech on July 27, 2007. Such a baller move right there. So baller. It's like get up and quit during your keynote damn okay uh next up is the google app engine launched in 2008 as a metered billing platform for custom python applications but it didn't allow for arbitrary code execution it used the uh the wsgi spec for a request interface web service gateway interface i believe is what that stands for um so basically You'd send HTTP requests to a lightweight server, um, and it was a standard implementation agnostic API for calling through to a, a Python application underneath. It was a more of a platform as a service, really, and is still around covering more languages than it initially was. So this is still out there, but um, it, didn't, it didn't meet the same kind of arbitrary compute capabilities that modern serverless does. Yeah, and after that came PyCloud, one of the first to be a true uh, functions as a service platform for Python. It launched in 2010. It was then acquired by Dropbox in 2013. Uh, little is known today about it. The website is dead, and this is like a common occurrence with uh, big tech companies. They buy their competitors, and then they just fade from existence. It's kind of kind of sad. 
but I suppose that is the, the process of creative destruction. Um, so next up, and this is a name probably everyone will recognize, AWS Lambda launched in November 2014, and it was a true watershed moment in serverless computing. Other services like S3 had been around for years before this, but complex applications still needed servers. Lambda opened the door to a different future. The AWS API Gateway launched in 2015 uh, with a very abstract user interface helping realize the power of serverless computing. So this is that request part of the infrastructure. So again, compute is the connective tissue that ties all these server, uh, services together, That the compute being Lambda. API Gateway is a decoupled way for applications to communicate with serverless services. The same API could call services in Java, JavaScript, Python, Go, Ruby, or any other language supported by AWS Lambda, which is really cool if you think about it. No matter, like, any route that your website needs to hit, um, it could be running in a different language if your backend is all AWS Lambda and all the requests run through the API gateway. In turn, those Lambda functions could also hook into your other services like S3, DynamoDB, or SNS, the Simple Notification Service. And then Firebase was founded as an independent company in 2011, and its first product was a real-time database that is still available today. In 2014, they launched their authentication and hosting services. The same year, they were acquired by Google in May 2016 at Google I.O., uh, Firebase introduced analytics and announced that it was expanding its services to become a unified backend as a service platform for mobile developers. In October 2017, Firebase launched Cl Cloud Firestore, a real-time document database as the successor product to the original Firebase real-time database. Me, myself, I'm a big fan of Firebase, and this history plays a lot into why these services are so popular now. Let's talk about the current serverless providers, Nick. Heck yeah. So where can you buy this new hotness? It's time. Um, I'm going to cover uh, AWS and their options in this briefly. So they're one of the most, if not the most, uh, popular uh, serverless provider right now. They have an insane variety of services out there to consume, but some of the most popular are in the compute category, Lambda, um, in the request interface category, API Gateway. In the storage category, you have DynamoDB, which is their NoSQL database, and um, S3, which is simple static storage. Um, and then on the messaging front, you have SNS, which is for PubSub messaging, and uh, SQS, which is uh, for the queuing side of things. So those would be simple notification service and simple queue service. And then there's, there is my baby, Firebase, that I truly love to work on due to how easy and pretty the interface is. The docs are amazing. Firebase runs on top of the Google Cloud platform. And the services they offer are Firebase Firestore. That's a, there are no SQL database but queries can be performed using the NPM package. No need for routes. Um, then they have the cloud functions that's functions as a service. Um, they have authentication independent of the database, but does 
but does not need routes too. They also have Firebase storage. That's a static storage similar to S3. Um, they have hosting, and then they have machine learning that was um, introduced a few months back. Then the Google Cloud has more services than Firebase since it mirrors what AWS is. Some of their services for serverless are Cloud Functions, same as Firebase. The App Engine with zero server management or configurations, deployments, developers can focus on building highly scalable applications without the management overhead. And then they have the Cloud Run that is a stateless HTTP container on a fully managed platform or on Antos. Canative at OpenAPI and runtime environment built on Kubernetes. Enables you to run workloads anywhere and is a fully managed, managed on Google Cloud on-premises on a third-party cloud provider via Antos. And so for clarification, that would be something very similar to um, kind of like AWS's ECS, uh, the Elastic Container Service. It's, it's Google's container management platform. So for the third major player uh, that we've selected for this, we've got uh, Microsoft Azure. Uh, and that's growing a lot in popularity. Just as AWS, they offer a lot of services we're not going to cover, but these are the main cloud and serverless things that you can use uh, from Azure. Their bot service, um, intelligent serverless bot service that scales on demand. Cognitive search, um, it's a, it combines uh, like AI and um, I'm guessing something like a Elasticsearch kind of database on the back end uh, to provide uh, advanced search capabilities. They do machine learning, so does Amazon, but this is a big one for Azure. Um, they bring AI to everyone with an end-to-end -end scalable trusted platform with experimentation and model management. Um, functions, again, uh, compute resources, process events with serverless code. And then Cosmos DB, which is their own NoSQL database solution with open APIs for any scale. Lastly, we got Cloudflare that has a limited service called Cloudflare Workers. They are the equivalent of AWS Lambda and they offer very low latency in all regions. It's, a ver it's very interesting to me because I truly believe that if they buckle down, they can really become a competitor to the big three. Yeah, Cloudflare's got a, a really cool and obviously booming business. They've done some insane stuff, so I'm sure that uh, we'll see a lot more about this coming out in the future. So uh, we've talked about where to get it. It's time to talk about why we should get it. Um, so I'm going to talk about why we should use serverless architecture. The first uh, is simple, lower cost. Depending on your application, serverless can be a cheaper route because you'll only be paying for the services when, you're being, when they're being used. This can be crucial for a new application when you don't have many users and you need to go for the cheapest alternative. This likely doesn't hold true for applications that do heavy processing because most serverless platforms are optimized for very short running operations on the compute resources side. Uh, we'll cover that a bit in a moment. Serverless can also help lower dev overhead costs because it can cut a lot of the development time due to its simplicity. Your devs don't need to spend time learning how to work with your custom server setup and can focus purely on development. Additionally, you don't need to worry about 
maintaining those servers and that overhead, which saves you money on wages for an infrastructure engineer and for the server itself. Um, another benefit is simplified backend code. Since you don't have to worry about configuring your server, you can create serverless functions that carry out simple operations. This can be sending an email or updating a database. Maintaining only the necessary code to run those operations means your dev won't need to spend time maintaining the server code that you'd need to write just to be able to make them available uh, via your own API. They can only they can dedicate their time specifically to the processing rather than all of the plumbing that helps your requests get to that processing. Additionally, uh, and this one is is a huge benefit for us at Doc Network, uh, simplified scaling. Developers using serverless don't have to worry about policies to scale up their code. Um, the vendor takes care of scaling your application on demand. So if you see a spike in usage, your provider will automatically allocate more resources without any intervention from you. Similarly, when traffic drops, the resources automatically scale back down so you won't be paying for any increased server capacity. This is true on a traditional cloud model as well, um, not to get too deep into the weeds. There's tons of kind of, you know, policy work that you can set up around this to control scaling, but it's way, way easier uh, with, with Lambda than it is to like spin up a whole new server and takes way less time to scale that, that capability up. So that's really nice. Um, lastly, for me, there is the, the fact of a quicker turnaround when using serverless stuff. Um, having a simplified backend can help you increase the speed of the development process, getting your application into the market sooner. One of the main points of a lean startup is to get to MVP as quickly as possible um, so that you can begin collecting feedback and, from your, your target audience and from the market and then pivot or address any problems with your application to make sure you're meeting the needs of your customers. Even if you are working for a bigger company, if you are building something and need it done quickly, serverless can be a really good option. Now that we have covered all of the really great parts of serverless, uh, we have to come to the unfortunate fact that it can't all be sunshine and roses, right? What are some of the drawbacks of serverless architecture, Ori? Yeah, it's important to know when serverless is a good choice for you and when it isn't. There are many reasons why it might not be a good choice for your project, but I'll address the three main ones that I see. So the first one is vendor lock-in. So when you're when choosing a vendor, you must be aware that you might get locked into their services for the long run. Your AWS Lambda function can can run on Google Cloud Platform without serious changes to the code. You lose control over the hardware and updates that could lead to issues in your application. You go also you could transition your serverless functions to an actual server that you set up yourself, but that will take time to do. They also don't make it easy to switch to another vendor. The other one is unsustainable for long running tasks. If you're running a data heavy backend that does a bunch of computing, it could rack up a pretty big bill. Serverless is more for doing small computing problems like fetching data or sending an email. They are not meant to be run for a long time. In fact, most providers only allow functions to run for a short period of time before they're automatically terminated. For example, 
you will not want to use serverless computing resource, resources to try and solve for the 3 millionth digit of pi. That's a lot of computation that's going to take a lot of time. Another example will be a function that waits on some request that takes a long time. If you use a serverless function to make a DB query that takes 3 minutes to resolve, your function is just waiting for 3 minutes without doing any work. That's wasted money. There might be other more cost-effective ways to get that done with serverless architecture, but they require a different approach to the problem. Then the final reason um, that you might want to avoid serverless functions is the cold start problem. When you run a serverless function, your provider needs to spin up a virtual, virtual environment to execute your code. That cold start takes time. Most providers will keep these environments on hand for a short period of time to help alleviate some of the impacts of cold starts. But it's not a silver bullet. If your function is used infrequently, it goes dormant. When it's called again, it becomes active and runs the code. Cold starts will make that slow even if the code itself is really fast, which can have a real negative impact on user experience. On the other hand, if you have a function that's invoked all the time, it can reuse the environment from the previous invocation to avoid the cold start problem. And as we mentioned before, this is uh, something that Cloudflare is promoting and that they have a very short time for the cold start problem. Yeah, that's a good call out. That, that is what we meant earlier when, when he said very low latency. Um, apparently they have figured out the cold start problem and, and have almost eliminated that on their platform, which big if true is what I'll say on that one. <laughs> yep. So... I'm going to move into examples of serverless architecture in the wild, but before we do, I was listening to you, Ori, and it occurred to me that most of the problems that we just addressed with serverless um, come down to one major category, and that's you lose control over your environment. Um, in the trade-off for making things simpler, you uh, give away levels of control that would allow you to, to tune your system to avoid the problems that we just talked about. That said, the, as I was addressing earlier, giving away that complexity uh, and, and flexibility is something that, you know, it's, it's really going to speed up your development time in a lot of cases. Um, and we can look at that from our own standpoint coming up here. But that's a theme that I've noticed a lot, and I believe I've talked about here in Sudo before. There is a direct trade-off between complexity and speed in a lot of cases. Um, so just a just an interesting thought. So now that we've talked about some of the theoretical benefits and drawbacks of serverless architecture, let's see how it works in the real world. That's always more fun anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. Lots of big companies use serverless for all kinds of operations like Netflix, T-Mobile, Square Enix, MLB, Vogue and our very own doc network. Darn right. But it's not just the big guys that are using serverless, right? Uh, when have you used serverless in your own projects, Ori? 
Yeah, I have used serverless stuff for a few different personal projects. For the most simple example, I use Firebase Cloud Functions for sending emails on my commit hub site. In the contact section, if you fill your information, it uses uh, that uh, serverless function to, to send that email. For a more advanced example, I'll point to my privacy not included project that there I use Firebase Firestore to store information on each company we highlight. Then I use our NPM package that I mentioned before to make queries to my database from the client side. The NPM package is basically a nifty helper library that lets you do complex interactions through, through an easy to use service. We also use a fair amount of serverless infrastructure at Doc Network. Yes, we do. Um, we've played with it extensively for our production application. And we found some really good uses and some not so good uses for it. But I think we should talk about a success story. Um, not long after you started, Ori, we ran into a major problem with our notification system. It's business critical for a lot of our clients. And in the summer of 2019, it basically ground to a halt. Yeah, and I personally did not work on that, but my coworkers were scrambling around to get it resolved. So let's talk a little bit about that. So we had tens of thousands of notifications that were backed up, waiting to go out. Some of those were time sensitive, and it was not a good look. No, no, it was not. <laughs> the original notification system used a traditional server architecture. Sending notifications was a scheduled job that ran with a very high frequency. We ran a dedicated cron server like many other companies. That server was responsible for reading unsent notifications from our database, sending them via our email service provider and then marking them as sent in the database. There were several major problems with this setup. First, because our cron server architecture, one job must finish execution before another can begin. We won't discuss the technical and processal reasons for that here, but that's an important constraint to understand. As a result, other long running jobs can stall or send notification job. Second, our query for unsend notification takes longer and longer to run as the number of unsend notifications increases. That created a self-reinforcing problem. In an attempt to reduce the impact of that problem, we long ago added an arbitrary limit to the query. To the query. We could only send a certain number of notifications per second. This helped our query complete faster but also made it harder to work through our notification backlog. Finally, the most common use case for notifications in our application is for direct communication between our clients, that is our camps, schools, and businesses, and their participants, so to speak, uh, campers, students, and employees. That means most of our clients' notifications are time critical and send and they were sent in bulk. This use case combined with the technical limitations I just described created a perfect storm for our happiness and we had to scramble to address it. To meet the needs of our clients, we had to create a solution that number one, scaled with their demand 
in number two, guaranteed a number, uh, timely delivered in number three, didn't degrade other clients' experience in a platform under heavy load. Yeah, which uh, not a small ask. Um, so given those needs, serverless was clearly the approach. Um, that was the best way that we saw to go forward. We'd been experimenting with AWS Lambda for a while at this point, so it wasn't a new paradigm for us. Uh, when analyzing the issues that Ori just outlined, we realized we were trying to solve a messaging problem. As we discussed before, all major cloud service providers offer messaging services we could leverage. We run on AWS, so we chose the simple queue service, SQS, as a way to track what messages we needed to send. Right off the bat, that let us cut out the most time-consuming part of our old process, querying for notifications to send. Furthermore, it dramatically reduced the load on our database, improving both real and perceived performance because we were no longer running that expensive query. That was great, but SQS wasn't a complete solution for us. We still needed to send out our notifications. There are solutions, specifically the simple notification service, that can directly send messages via SQS. Um, it, you hook it up and it will blast it out however you want to send it, email, push notification, whatever. Um, but that wouldn't fit our needs. We didn't want to break any other functionality that our clients relied on, and to keep that functionality, we needed compute resources. As a result, we decided to use AWS Lambda 2.1, send each notification via the service of our choice, and 2, to update our database accordingly. This further reduced load on our application servers and database, though to a much lesser extent than the query. Um, at this point, we were certain we'd achieved our core goal of improving app-wide client experience. But what about scalability and delivery times? At a technical level, our delivery process is really fast because we can horizontally scale it so much. Without any special tweaking, we could, in theory, send between 1 and 2,000 notifications per second maybe more. We never tested our upper limits, and I'll address that in a second. Um, but yeah, we, we don't actually know how fast we can send them, but it's faster than we need. <laughs> uh, because of the serverless architecture that we chose, all that scaling would happen automatically as demand for the feature increased. And we are sending at least a few notifications every minute throughout normal business hours in the United States, and even much of the night. So we're avoiding that cold start penalty we talked about earlier as well. Yeah, and that frequency is important for two reasons. First, like Nick mentioned, we avoid the cold start penalties we talked about earlier because this particular function is so highly used and therefore available. Second, it means that we're only paying for the extra compute power when we really need it. Also, for a brief explain like on five of scaling terms, Think of horizontal scaling as having a bunch of really small computers doing the same job and vertical scaling as having one computer that gets more powerful to do the same job faster. Generally, horizontal scaling works better in cloud infrastructure because it's easier and cheaper to throw more small computers at a hard problem than to upgrade a small computer to a big computer. In our case here, the job itself is relatively small, but there's a ton of them, like a lot. So horizontal scaling is the ideal paradigm. Ah, yeah, I totally just slipped that jargon in there. Thanks, Ori. So before, our bottleneck was how fast can we query for unsent notifications? 
Now our bottleneck is how much throughput does our email service provider allow? We are literally not allowed to send as many notifications as we possibly can, and we have no reason to pay for the privilege. The new scalability we have can match any problem we've seen so far, and if that ever becomes an issue, uh, we can work with our service providers to up our limits. Nice, scalability achieved. As a result, our delivery times are also capped by our service provider's throughput. Every time we save a new notification to our database, we also push the message into SQS. In turn, the queue automatically triggers our Lambda function, and we only allow a certain number of that function to be run at once so we don't exceed our email spend, uh, sending limits and to manage our costs. Our notifications no longer wait on long-running cron jobs to send, only on other processes that complete in less than a second. So even when our backlog gets really long, we're still going to be able to deliver very quickly um, on, on our send times, which is great. So we were able to really achieve all of our goals by moving our notification pipeline onto serverless architecture. Yeah, I think that's a goal of every company. They want to save as much money as possible, especially when managing servers. Um, though AWS bill for every company is unique and is very expensive. So managing how you use those compute resources is very important. Um, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode too, though, because it's a subject I truly enjoy um, and it has made my workflows on my personal projects smoother and quicker because I don't I don't have time to match all servers. I only have like two hours every day to to work on my personal projects and that is enough for myself. Yeah. You know, you, you when you're doing stuff like that, when you're just like messing around, you don't wanna waste the time on setting up all this boilerplate just so that you can get going with something simple. I mean obviously it depends on your project and it depends on you know what what exactly you're developing. But Ori, you and I both focus largely on the front end of our application. That's kind of our space. And so for us, spending time building out a server is is really wasted time. Most of what we're doing is happening client side anyway. And so those the capability to use serverless is is really huge for us in that regard. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I mostly see it as I'm the front end of the band. I like I like making websites pretty. I don't care about controlling my server. I just want it to be done so that I can move forward with my project. And most of the time, serverless is very useful for me, and I don't use that much server capacity anyways to handle all my tasks. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, uh, for the next episode... We're going to be talking about all things AWS. So we'll cover the several services that we're familiar with uh, in a bit more depth. You heard about a lot of them today, but we'll be taking a deeper look at them, not just from the aspect of their serverless. Um, instead, we'll be focusing on what each service is and uh, try to talk about some good practices for using them. So we'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, have a good one.